0: Welcome to season four of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Before we get started, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you that have subscribed, listened and reviewed the episodes. I really do appreciate you taking the time. Welcome to another episode of the Art of Teaching podcast. Vivian Robinson is currently a professor in the Faculty of Education at the University of Auckland and academic director for its Centre for Educational Leadership. She is also a visiting professor at the London Institute of Education and she gained her PhD in clinical psychology from Harvard University in 1976. Her work centres around organisational psychology and education The research is concerned with organisational learning and leadership, instructional leadership, school effectiveness and improvement, and research methodology. In this discussion we talk about why change isn't always desirable and why we should be focusing on improvement instead, and why change may actually be perpetuating leader and teacher burnout. We also talked about how we can move away from quick fixes and why we should adopt a more comprehensive improvement process. It was an incredible privilege to speak with Vivian, and I'm so thankful that she took the time to speak with me. I hope that you enjoy this wide-ranging discussion. Professor Vivian Robinson, thank you for, uh, so much for having a conversation with me. I really appreciate you taking the time today.
1: You're most welcome, Matthew.
0: I can see a, a beautiful uh, window behind you. What's, your, what's the view out of that window like? You mentioned that you uh, live near a beach.
1: Well, um, the view out of the window behind me is, is of the bush on our property. The view out of the window to my um, <coughs> left is, um, is uh, Pihar Beach, which is a surf beach on the west coast of Auckland on the Tasman Sea. So when I look out there, I can see uh, the sea between Australia and New Zealand.
0: Are you a? Are you an avid beach goer? Do you surf? Do you swim?
1: I, I swim. I don't. I body surf, swim, and tramp.
0: Lovely, lovely, fantastic, and uh, quite possibly the most important question for our conversation. What is your coffee order for when I can finally buy you a coffee?
1: Um. I only drink decaffeinated coffee. Yeah, um, which I and which is very good these days. If you get a good one, you can't tell the difference. Or, okay. A lot of people who uh, come to our house and we only have decaf, um, they they don't realise they're drinking decaf, and um, and so my coffee order is um, a large double shot decaf flat white.
0: Fantastic. I will. Uh, I will keep that in mind. Um, if you could have a dinner party, obviously your, your family are not included in the headcount, um, but who would you like to be there? Who would be great to sit down with and have a conversation with
1: over dinner? Um, the people that I'd like to have a conversation with over dinner um, are uh, Jane Campion, the um, film New Zealand film director. If yep. I want to ask her why her um, movies are... So bleak, uh, and why she hates men so much, um, because they're very, most of her movies are about um, um, toxic, m- have toxic males in them one way or another. Okay. Um, so that would be a really interesting thing to, to talk, talk to Heather about, um, whether that's true, whether she does want to portray uh, the the gender issues and uh, the to- toxic masculinity, um, so I'd want to talk to her. Um, in addition, um, Jacinda Ardern, our New Zealand Prime Minister,
0: yes, um, she has come up a lot in in uh, dinner party uh, invitations. Jacinda Ardern this internationally as well, so she would yeah. be many.
1: Yeah, so I'd want to talk to her. Um, Then I would want to talk to um, Paul Krugman, who's a um, New York Times uh, columnist, um, uh, ex-Nobel prize winner in um, economics. So I'd like to talk to him and particularly about why he left uh, academia um, and how he sees the profession of economics. Um, and why economists, um, uh, uh, why uh, the dismal science of economics um, is is dismal, and why there's no consensus about whether to uh, have financial stimulus or financial cutbacks. Um, there's, 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 they seem to be all over the place.
0: Amazing. That sounds like an incredible dinner party. It would be hard to organise all of those people, but uh,
1: yeah. if I can
0: pull that off, I'll let you know and send you an invitation. Yeah. Look, um, uh, Vivian, I was just wondering, uh, what was your um, upbringing like? And can you give those people who aren't familiar with your work um, a, a bit of an outline of, of how you got to where you are today? Because my understanding is, is that it has been incredibly varied.
1: Yes, well I, well, I don't know that it's been that varied, but um, I grew up in a family of teachers, yeah. um, like many educators. Um, my mother was a classics scholar and a high secondary school teacher, uh, taught Latin and um, classics. And... Uh, my father was a primary school teacher and a primary school uh, principal headmaster as it was called in those days my uncle was a uh principal of a small rural school where most of the pupils were his own children um and so just educate education and educators were just a big part of our family upbringing yeah and um My parents didn't want me to be a teacher. um, Partly, I think, because of the stress, even in those days, particularly my father, um, the stress he experienced. Um, They wanted me to go to university. And uh, so I remember walking home from primary school when I was about 10, thinking I wanted to go to university. Um, And so... That was one very big theme in my family. The other very big theme was that of public service. Um, If you're lucky enough to be born with brains, um, you better use those brains for the good of everybody and and to make the world a better place. So that was a very powerful theme in our family um, as well. And then uh, when I went to university, I did a double degree in um, education and psychology. Um, I did quite a lot of sociology as well. Then I went to Harvard for my doctorate and met Ardris and worked with Argyris and Schoen and um, became an organisational psychologist. Um, At one stage, I wondered about going into the corporate world, uh, but that didn't feel very satisfying morally or any other way. And... So I then got very serious about education and spent a lot of time in schools doing field work and, and have devoted my career to doing research that connects with and improves practice. Gosh,
0: fantastic. It's, um, it's so inspiring to see uh, and, and to see the volume of your work. I mean, your, um, your biography is extensive, but it's really lovely to see that even now, um, as you talk about some of the change that you've had, you you, you light up and it seems like it's still, it still excites you, the work that you're doing, which is really wonderful um, yes. and really refreshing. And um, yeah. I just wanted to, uh, if you don't mind, Vivian, just to talk a little bit about your, your recent work, um, 2018, seems like a lifetime ago, uh, but it is relatively recent, um, uh, titled Reduce Changes to Increase Improvement. And I just wanted to read a quote uh, to you. And I was just wondering if you wouldn't mind um, maybe unpacking it. And it says, excuse me, planned changes often fail because those designing them underestimate the complexity of implementation, a complexity that is experienced by implementing agents, but given too little attention by change leaders. Would you Mm -hmm. mind spending a few moments uh, talking about that and maybe unpacking why that is so central to that particular work?
1: Uh, yes. Well, actually, in order to answer that question, um, I have to answer some previous questions. Yeah. Um, and, um, but, but in short, um, the implement when you're let's let's take an, let's take an example. You want um, you want a, a group of teachers to change from ability grouping to mixed ability teaching. And, and that's a, an example of the sort of change that, that schools, and, and indeed in, in New Zealand and some uh, uh, nationally, we're just starting to undertake uh, because of the evidence about um, the relationship between ability grouping and inequitable opportunities to learn. Yes. Uh, And and there's quite a lot of really important evidence about that. Now, um, one of the problems that leaders have um, is they don't do enough, they don't spend enough time investigating why teachers want to hang on to ability grouping, Yes. why they um, are opposed to mixed ability grouping, And because they haven't studied what teachers currently do in their ability grouping, and they certainly haven't dug into the theories of action that sustain the practice of ability grouping, they have no idea of the complexity of the change required. Yes, It is not just a matter of changing the grouping practices. um, In order to have Ability grouping works successfully, uh, and I'm thinking of uh, maths, for example. Yes. Um, it usually goes with um, pedagogical changes, which means you have to have rich tasks which have multiple, which serve students at multiple levels. You have to have those students be able to interact in that group and have the ones and have them recognize that there are multiple entries into a complex yeah. maths comprehension problem. Or um, so the and so, so in order for that um, a change to become an improvement, as opposed to just another failed change, yeah. um, you may find as leaders that you have to teach your teachers how to plan differently how to construct rich tasks. You have teachers who, will, who cannot manage small groups, who cannot teach the peer culture that is required to have productive discussions in those small groups, who cannot assess the um, maths reasoning processes that you're trying to shift teachers away from, from numeracy into maths reasoning and comprehension. You have to change all of that, those beliefs and those practices. So it is not just a matter of changing grouping practices. It's a matter of changing assessment practices, yeah. teaching practices, lesson planning, behavior management, and peer teaching. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So does that example sort of answer your question about why?
0: Absolutely. And it's such a it's such a broad question. And I think um, in particular, uh, your 2018 work, I, I found it incredibly challenging because you talked so much about the um, obsession with change that schools have. Um, and also you, uh, you really define the difference. So you talk about the difference between change and improvement. And yeah. I am in a, um In my role, things are changing. Gosh, every hour, it seems like. Um, and it really spoke to me in terms of uh, I never actually thought of the difference of those two things. So would you mind even just talking briefly about the difference between change and improvement? And why do you think in many ways we get it wrong as educational leaders?
1: Well, as I, as I define both these concepts in the book, yeah. uh, to change something simply means to do something different. That is all it means. Yeah. And there's a truckload of examples in education <laughs> where changes make things worse. So there is no change is not necessarily desirable.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. The notion, it's what it's what's called an honorific, the notion of changing. And the same with innovating. Yeah. That that concept unfortunately has acquired a positive tone. There is nothing positive about changing.
0: Yeah.
1: It's neutral. And so is innovating. Yeah. Just innovation just means doing something new. What you need to be shooting for is improvement, yeah. which is a whole lot more ambitious and harder than changing things or innovating. Yeah. Absolutely. So I actually want to eliminate the notion that change is necessarily desirable and that innovation is necessarily desirable. A whole lot of it is a terrible waste of resources and leaders and teachers' time, yeah. let alone their students' time. Absolutely. A terrible waste, because it doesn't improve, it produce improvement. Now, as one leader said to me, of course, when leaders change things, they they expect improvement, they think it's going to improve. But if you've gone from ability to mixed ability grouping without investigating the complexity of current practice. Absolutely you are headed for change that's not going to improve anything.
0: Yeah. Do you think change makes us feel like we are doing something that is productive um, and we are busy as opposed to actually making any difference at all?
1: Well, this is the... Um, it, it, possibly, but it is such a dysfunctional mindset. I mean, you are self-perpetuating teacher and leader burnout. You yeah. are absolutely self-perpetuating it by a mindset that says I'm doing stuff because I'm changing things.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: You you actually, you you need to be reframing that and saying, uh, my job is to improve things.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Not to change things.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, it, obviously, improvement requires change, but you are shooting for something That makes you much more thoughtful. Yeah. Much more disinclined to reach for the quick fix.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, The solution-oriented focus, um, where you're, you you know, I use the a medical analogy here, um, uh, where Matthew, where you when you have a sore back. You don't expect when you go to see the doctor about it for the doctor to be writing the prescription before he's diagnosed the problem.
0: That would be ridiculous.
1: Yeah, <laughs> because bad problems are complex. They have a whole, in other words, what we're doing in education is we're writing the prescription and we haven't done the diagnosis. And we do that all the time. And leaders that think that their job is to come up with the quick fix for their teacher's problems, all they're doing is writing the prescriptions.
0: Wow.
1: That's all they're doing. They haven't done the diagnosis. And, And even if it's something that, like, like leaders want to support their staff. So the staff's got a bright idea. Um, school down the roads using this program or that program. I think that might help. And the teacher's volunteering and enthusiastic. What that leader should be doing is saying, what is the problem for which this program is meant to be the solution? Yeah. And how much study have you and others and me done of the problem and what its causes are. Have we diagnosed the problem?
0: Yeah.
1: And the answer is far too often, no, we haven't.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's so important, um, Vivian, just to take the time to to actually really think about what is the problem we're trying to solve and not just jump on the bandwagon of whatever an educational publisher may be uh, putting in front of you to use any kind of quick fix. Um, So what, so how do we, Sorry. What are some of the essential components then to to lead improvement? I know you talk a lot about theory of action, single and double loop learning, and a number of other concepts in your book. But how do we actually begin to um, lead successful improvements in schools? It's a very big question.
1: Yes, it is. Well, in the book, I've got first of all, you um, you stop the quick fix, and 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 you move into a more systematic problem solving process. Yeah. So I present in the book with multiple examples, including the conversations you need to have with teachers who don't think that who don't who don't think that what you're suggesting is any good. Yes. Um, I present a model and these examples of a four-stage improvement process. Yeah. And, and and those sta- stages are very um, um, important. And and lots of course of iterations that they're not just not just a linear sequence. The first thing is to get agreement that there is a problem to be solved. And 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 leaders who cannot do what I call constructive problem talk uh, are in trouble just in this stage because yes. they want to make some change because it's an opportunity because it's something new, because it's a bright idea they've picked up at a conference or in a network meeting or something. So if I'm a busy, stressed-out teacher, the last thing I want to hear from a leader is to change something because it's a great opportunity. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's, a, there's an infinite number of opportunities, and thank you very much, I'm not interested, because I'm up to my neck already. So what I am interested in is if I have a problem of practice in my classroom or an outcome, student outcome problem, and you come along and say, Vivian, we've been working with these kids on writing for six months, and it seems like their writing's not really improving. Would you agree? Yes, I say, I've tried, I've I've done all, you know, I'm I'm at my wit's end, I don't know what to do with these kids. Okay, Vivian. I think we should focus on that. I think that's an important problem for these reasons. Do you agree that we should work together on that? Yes. Of course. I'm going do it, leader. But, yeah, if you're coming to help me, that's fantastic.
0: Yeah.
1: Now, that's stage one done. We have an agreement that there is there is a problem to be solved. That is it. We may completely disagree on stage two, which is the causes of that writing problem. Mm. But that doesn't matter. We've got common ground. We both agree these kids' writing is not up to to scratch. That's stage Mm. one. Done. Yeah. Then we move into stage two. And the leader says, okay, Vivian, given that we've been going around the circle on this writing problem for a while, I think we should do a diagnosis. We should do a, we should try get we should get some good data to test our hunches about why this is going wrong, why these kids aren't learning how to write okay And that big that introduces stage two a, inquire into the theories of action of the teacher that lead to the writing problem. And so you might say, yes, quite agree. The previous year, they didn't have very good teaching of writing. And I absolutely agree. They came into your class with low level skills in writing. But we're here and now. And so I wanna focus on how you're teaching writing, what you're teaching, how the kids are responding, which means looking closely at what you're doing and not doing, to see if we can figure out what's happening for these kids. This is a no-blame causal inquiry. And that's what stage two is about, investigating that teacher's theory of action for teaching writing. It's not their philosophy of teaching writing. It's not their hopes for teaching writing. It's not, you know, it is... I'm going to see what you do, how you plan, how you teach, get some good behavioral evidence, how the kids respond, and your beliefs about why you teach. So when I know why you're teaching it the way you are, then I'm going to talk to you about it and do a think aloud in a sense of finding out why you're teaching it that way. We will construct together your theory of action. Then I will know not only how you're teaching writing now, but why you're teaching it that way, I will do you the respect of listening to why you are teaching it the way you're teaching.
0: Yes, that's so important. Yep,
1: that is stage two.
0: Yeah.
1: Then at stage three, we begin to construct together an alternative theory of action we know that the current theory is not working well enough because the kids writing's not improving and the teachers frustrated and dropping the amount of time they're teaching writing so the opportunities to learn quantitatively are going down as well as qualitatively so we construct an alternative and then i as leader say well i'm not sure i know how to fix this i know a little bit but i do know that teacher down the corridor, I've looked at her writing results for the same year level and it seems to me that she's got better results and I'm not sure why. Yes. I think the kids are similar to yours so I would like us to talk with that teacher, work together. How do you feel about that? Mm. Because I think we have some expertise within the year-level grouping within the network, this could be across school, that we should be accessing. And the reason why I'm saying that is because the kids' results seem better.
0: Mm.
1: It's not that they advertise, you know, it's results-focused. Yes. And then you start co-constructing an alternative, You, you have to, of course, iterate that, keep trying it, trialing it, resolving the obstacles and the diagnostic issues you had missed the first time round. Just keep iterating that until the writing gets better.
0: Absolutely. And uh, Vivian, there are so so many points within um, that wonderful framework that you've unpacked. I did just want to ask you briefly, um, how important do you think uh, psychological safety is, uh, that teachers have the um, I feel that they are able to ask questions and that they're able to to demonstrate and try and iterate.
1: How important do you oh, think that is in terms of? Well, it's it's critically important, which is why in my in my book with these four stages, um, I am discussing the required interpersonal processes to create the safety. The whole way through. So I have a structure of of improvement, whether it's improvement in a class or a team or a school improvement, it's the same structure. And within that structure is an interpersonal process to create safety and, and accurate evidence and that's why the book has so many transcripts of the actual conversations, because just being, you know, up in the abstraction, talking about stages without actually talking about how do you have these conversations, yeah, it's not helpful. It's too abstract. Yes. you need to be, you need to be able to demonstrate what what Ardurus always taught us you should not give advice that you cannot demonstrate and demonstrate it means showing modeling the conversation
0: it's so it, it, it's so important and what what wonderful advice and, and a, another quote that i read um, in your book that really stood out to me um, says that we don't need to have data on every decision, but we need to have our ideas challenged and checked. Yeah. What we do need to do is ask, what have we missed? And I think that's so important. And, and why do you think it's, it, it's vital to challenge some of these assumptions as you're going in and observing practice?
1: Well, let's go back to the medical analogy. Yeah. Um, uh, the doctor's got an assumption that your back problem is because you've got a rotten mattress in your bed. Right? So he writes out the prescription get a new mattress. You would be appalled because he hadn't, if he hadn't actually checked with you carefully about the nature of your mattress, Mm, if he hadn't also checked other possibilities, other hypotheses, if he hadn't, for example, had a scan taken. If, 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 if this is a long-standing issue, you know? So, so that's why um, checking uh, is, is important. And sometimes that checking requires a quite formal process of examining formal data. And sometimes it requires just, just challenging so that when the teacher says, well, the way these kids can't write because they're never there, they're absent. And so you say, oh, okay, so let's just look at your, at the, at the um, student management system, at the absence management system. Let's just take a look. Um, Louisa's can't write either, and um, Sam can't write. Um, but, the, but, absent, but their attendance is really good. Mm. So it can't just be uh, their fact that they're not attending. Uh, it can't just be an attendance problem. Do you yeah. see? That's a challenge. That's, but but the, the principle is you do not write the prescription without testing the beliefs about what's causing the problem because otherwise you've gone out and spent uh, however many hundreds of dollars on a fancy new mattress, orthopedic mattress and that's it, not the problem at all. That's not the cause of your back problem. You just wasted a whole lot of more time and money, which Absolutely. we do with all the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more, uh, Vivian. And it's so refreshing to hear um, somebody talk about it in 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 such a easy to understand way. I mean, reading your book was a, a, just a real breath of fresh air. I thought finally someone is articulating um, some of the issues that we have had all along. And I, I thank you for writing it, even in such a way that is so easy to understand and comprehend. And I. I'm spending some time in my classroom tomorrow and I've got, um, I'm taking your book with me um, through into some of my coaching conversations I need to have. And um, yeah. thank you, thank you, thank you for, for writing this book. It's so important. And you write um, seeking is truth seeking. Um, yeah. what, what do you mean by that? I know you may have covered a few of the elements, but, but what do you mean when you, uh, when, you quite, when you say that?
1: Well, the way um, this is based on Ardris and Shun's work, um, do you know those writers, those I, theorists?
0: I have heard of them. Um yeah. I, I'm not particularly yeah. familiar with their work. Yeah. But well they
1: they ones. um developed the concepts of theory of action and single loop and double loop learning. They yeah. were the they were the originators of those big ideas. Yes. And and I I had the privilege of studying with them at Harvard for four years. One of the most critical um values in um doing this work, indeed in life, I would argue, is that you are constantly reflective and open to learning. You're constantly open to learning about the the validity of your beliefs. Yes, absolutely. So that is what I, so, but most people, and and our brains are hardwired um, to assume the truth of our beliefs, that taken for granted. So we see the writing problem and we immediately leap to the inference that it's because of student absence. Right, we just go rock it up from the ladder of inference. And so it is critical that we are open to learning and able to challenge ourselves and others. Why? Because we are so powerful. Because leaders and teachers are hugely powerful. They are shaping the lives and learning of their students. Absolutely. Every day. They are making a difference for the well-being and the future life chances of students. And they better be careful about the validity of their beliefs. Absolutely. And So that's why that is, I mean, it's important in life generally to be pursuing, seeking rather than claiming the truth. You're a truth seeker, not a truth claimer. That is a central value in my life. Um, and it, it's critically important for educators.
0: Absolutely. And Vivian, can I ask maybe a more of a, a personal question? How do you do that in your own life? How do you make sure that you are whether it be with your research or other endeavours that you're involved in, how do you make sure that you're constantly asking those questions and challenging assumptions?
1: Yes, well, um, you um, see your partner, let's say, um, not doing something that you think they should be doing, right? Yes. So you pause and you ask yourself um, whether, um, whether your, your belief that they're not doing it, um, or won't do it, or yes. haven't done it. Yes, is correct, and then you ask yourself um, because you also value the autonomy of your partner. Yes, you you ask yourself whether um, this is worth asking about, and then if you do ask it, you do not say in an accusing tone. You haven't mowed the lawns, and you said you were going to. You say something like, I, th- I thought you were going to mow the lawns, pause, take.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay? It's, re- it's really good, uh, really good marriage advice there as well. Thank you, Vivian. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah.
1: Hey. yeah. So you sort of, and, and, and what motivates that is that you want to be a better person. Mm. You want to be a better partner. You want to have a better relationship. Well, those sorts of interpersonal um, skill values and skills um, do it. Yeah. I
0: mean,
1: I've had leaders in my courses that the, the facilitators who teach this interpersonal work, because I I I didn't elaborate it in this book, but there's another whole book that is about this interpersonal work, and we have Sorry. You probably know that in Victoria we have a group of facilitators who we've trained and accredited to teach yes. leading by learning. Well, um, I've had they talk to me about how this is not only professionally beneficial, but in one case at least, it saved his marriage. And that's his words. Gosh. Yeah.
0: Wow, that's um, that's really meaningful. And I'll, I'll put um, Vivian. I'll put all of the links. To all of the, the books and the resources that we talk about in the show notes so people can, um, yeah. can access them uh, and you've definitely given me a lot of homework to do on uh, um, a little bit more reading which is which is really wonderful and um, Vivian I've just got a, a few more moments together and I do want to be respectful um, of your time uh, and thank you so much for covering um, the uh, vast uh, range of uh, topics that you have it's really wonderful Um, but I just wanted to get your thoughts um, about the current uh, and ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and what you think it has taught us about the, the work that schools do.
1: Well, I think, first of all, um, the evidence on what's happening to kids, and particularly it, from an equity point of view, um, has just shown us that um the romance of remote learning is is a romance um, that that kids who are already disadvantaged are further disadvantaged by remote learning. Obviously, the kids and uh, you know children of professionals and middle class people with the educational cap and cultural capital that you re- are, is required for remote learning. Um, they they will do well. In some cases, they're flying. I mean, I can tell you about four families of my colleagues who are teachers um, who have tutored their kids during COVID to catch up on stuff that they were behind in, in at school. All boys. Okay. So those 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 children have 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 done better in remote learning than they have at school. Similarly, my neighbor's kids, incredibly bright, um, who are 16 and 17, they got their lessons remotely at 9.30 in the morning. They had finished them at 11.30 and they realized how much of their time was wasted at school. So, that's, that, so those are a couple of things we, we, we've learned about from from uh, so in, in the positive thing out of this is just how critical teachers are face to face with kids yeah yeah um and especially for those groups of kids for whom the only place where they will learn school curricula is at school yeah and those are the ones we go on about in terms of social justice and equity well actually, um, remote learning is horrific for those kids.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and I know that, you know, when I listen to principals talking about what happened to their schools in remote learning, they don't say that, of
0: course. Of course they wouldn't, yeah.
1: They say our teachers coped brilliantly and pivoted from this to that, um, which they did. But the evidence is in now um, that the the, the, the equity gaps that we have struggling with across the whole of the OECD and, and, and which are getting worse in New Zealand and possibly in Australia as well, although you're more on top of some of this than we are in New Zealand. Um, that has, COVID has been a disaster. Because yeah. one, one of the things that that um, is really highly correlated with student growth is opportunities to learn, which it can be defined quantitatively and qualitatively. But if you define it quantitatively, it's exposure to content. Mm. Okay? Yeah. There, there are all sorts of ways in which kids are not exposed to content that they're meant to be exposed to through absence, uh, waste of time and lessons, Um, Teachers, especially at primary school, not teaching material that they don't feel confident about and and, and on and on, plus the term one effect and the term four effect, which is that serious teaching stops um, or doesn't start in term one and term four in many schools. Um, So the COVID thing has just added to the the problem of of opportunities. um, Wow of diminished opportunities to learn while at the same time showing just how important it is for teachers to teach kids. And and the other thing about COVID, I think, which I don't think has been perhaps as recognized as it could have been, is that the most powerful intervention for kids who are behind is uh, tutoring. Um, small group tutoring. And so I would have hoped that schools would have organised remote lessons by the kids that are self-managing, got plenty of resources at home, could have been given their lessons, occasional check-ins, but that's about it. And that teachers be organised and reorganised as tutors so that the kids who are behind have the opportunity remotely for intensive tutoring. The ones, the examples I gave, they got it from their parents and grandparents. Um, But it would have been nice if more schools had organised to uh, have teachers um, tutoring, doing intensive tutoring. Yeah, absolutely. of, Of small groups. Do you know of any schools that did that, Matthew?
0: My understanding is that we received a budget for COVID tutoring um, but that was very much done uh, once uh, I can only speak out of one school that I've been at but was done once students returned to school and then they were taken yeah. in uh, in many ways a learning support model um, I don't know of any other um, yeah I don't know of any other initiatives yes either. yeah
1: well that that's 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 really positive that that, that tutoring Um um, happens and and on the um, Bob Swabens What Works website, um, he's got a wonderful blog. He's he's died now recently, unfortunately. Um, he's got a wonderful blog about um, the conditions that need to be in place if tutoring is going to work. Yeah. Because like everything in education, if the implementation isn't done well, you won't get the results. Yeah.
0: And Vivian, just um. Wondering, are you uh, are you confident that schools can learn um, and I- improve um, coming out of uh, this pandemic, or do you think we'll spring back into well trodden paths?
1: Well, what paths would you want them to re to reconsider?
0: Well, I think I think that's a really good question. I, I think I'm ma- mainly coming from the point of view is that it's easier to remain the same as opposed to. As, as opposed to make any improvement. So do you think we will learn lessons from this or as do you think school structures will continue um, to pursue old habits?
1: Well, old habits are fine if they're good habits. Um, so the lessons to be learned are the same as the lessons whether it's COVID or not.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Which is um, which groups of kids in which subjects, which content, which wellbeing areas are suffering.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And how can we do a better job of um, meeting goals for growth for those kids? Now, whether whether you've got COVID or whether you haven't, I mean, COVID makes it much more difficult because you get distracted by a thousand memos from the department, and you know having to reorganise all the furniture and the classes and the schedules, you know, it's just an enormous distraction. But in terms of the lessons for improvement, it's that same lesson.
0: Yeah, The lesson doesn't change, yeah.
1: The lesson doesn't change. You know, people might, you know, I mean, there's an enormous amount of romanticising of of, um, digital technology and remote learning just a huge amount of romanticizing of it. Um, and, and my focus is always on um, um, what's the evidence of student outcomes? Um, and, and, and the fact that, um, you know, kids become more digitally um, savvy, that's fine. Um, but is that translating into the sorts of understandings, the sorts of uh, comprehension, the sorts of problem solving that those kids need to access um, Mm -hmm. tertiary and and further learning pathways? And often often it isn't. Yeah, Yeah.
0: absolutely. And uh, Vivian, just a a few more questions. Like I said, I do want to be um, respectful of your time, but Um, In uh, New South Wales, in in Australia, sorry, we are about to embark on another uh, year uh, of teaching. Schools go back uh, in New South Wales next week. Do you have any advice or any uh, thoughts that you would like to share um, for teachers that are about to step in front of a classroom, sometimes for the first time, um, in a potentially very uh, difficult and challenging educational context?
1: Um, Yes, I do. uh, decide what your priority goal is for those students for the year or the term, uh, and focus relentlessly on that goal and doing the improvement work you need to meet that goal. And do business as usual for everything else, and don't do anything else in terms of the, other than pursue that goal in addition to business as usual. Fantastic. Because and business as usual may be may in many respects not be very good. You live with it, you live with business as usual until you can bring that forward as a priority goal for improvement. You've chosen one, maybe two, you focus relentlessly on that because you will never achieve it unless you leave everything else as business as usual.
0: Fantastic, yeah. What a uh... What great advice. And and finally, uh, Vivian, where can people find out more about you and your amazing work? Because the the volume of work that you're engaged in uh, is immense. And so it would be lovely to stay in touch.
1: Well, shall I just you? I mean, I'm useless at social media and all of that. I've been reading about the enormous impact that the social media world has on cognition and our brains. and 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 the attentional the attentional changes that social media are bringing to our brains and what that's doing for kids ability to read concentrate get in the flow pursue tasks in a in a focused in a in a focused way so I'm not very good at social media and I don't particularly want to be so what I how about this I send you my CV which is up to date and um it has lots all my publications on it
0: that would be one I will
1: send you um I think my university website's probably out of way out of date by now yeah so I will send you that and I will send you and I will send you um A little bit about my forthcoming book.
0: Fantastic. Well, um, I I can't wait. I can't wait to read that. I've I've downloaded a number of your books um, on my iPad, and it's going to take me a while to get through them. But I look forward to um, staying in touch. And I'm incredibly grateful for the investment you're making uh, into our profession. Um, So um, Professor Vivian Robinson, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I, um, I really do appreciate it.
1: Okay, thank you, Matthew, and I look forward to the podcast.
0: Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.